1921, the Brazer family got a dog, a little Scottish Collie, and uh, they, loved, they loved that dog. About two years later, they, they were from Silverton, Oregon, and they wanted to go visit family, so off they went to uh, Walcott, Indiana, and they took their dog with them. That was no small feat in 1923. And so they uh, were visiting family. And while the dog was out, a pack of dogs uh, got after it and attacked it. Fortunately, it was able to escape, but it bolted. I mean, it was just, it was gone. The dog was gone. And uh, when it came time for them to leave, they, they searched and they searched, but, but Bobby was nowhere to be found. Heartbroken, they returned to Oregon. Six months later, Bobby scratched at the door. Somehow or another, this dog had traveled about 2,500 miles as the crow flies, about 3,000 miles as they figured he did. He was featured in Ripley's Believe It or Not. Newspapers got out there. They interviewed people, and they were actually to track, able to track his route back to Silverton, Oregon. One point, he was even kept for a while by a, a family because he was injured so, uh, so badly. I, I, how he did that, I don't know. But all your dogs returning from distances are based on this story right here. They even made a movie about it. A silent movie in the 1920s, in 1927. That, that's a mystery as far as I'm concerned. How in the world did that happen? It's a mystery. Mystery as we use it, though, is, yeah, I mean, it's more in line with Stories like Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, you know, I mean, the deeper and the more penetra penetrating the mystery is, you know, the more uh, we revel in it. We all like a good mystery, whether it's in uh, a dog returning back over 3,000 miles or Sherlock Holmes, either one. A mystery is something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. I mean, that's how we use the phrase, the word. That's, that's the way we understand it. That is not the way the New Testament uses the word mystery. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 51 through 58, and we're going to see right before our eyes one of the most profound mysteries ever revealed. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58. Behold. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall it come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Biblically speaking, a mystery is not something that is difficult or impossible to explain, although it can be. What in the New Testament refers to a mystery is a truth that has not been previously revealed by God, but is now. Beginning in verse 51, I mean, Paul reveals this tremendous mystery to us. There are numerous mysteries in the New Testament, which we'll go over uh, some other time. But our text begins with behold, in verse 51, and behold here is emphatic. It demands our attention. Uh, one deployment I was on, I was visiting with the security forces. They're the people who take care of the perimeter. And we were chatting when a working uh, dog, sniffing for explosive, uh, alerted on a vehicle. And the handler, in a calm but firm voice, said, get behind the berm. Uh, he didn't have to say anything twice. My attention was absolutely riveted. That is exactly what Paul wants to do to you. That's the word here. Behold, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. I mean, this mystery is in unfolding right before our eyes. There will be believers. This is the mystery that is now revealed. There will be believers who are alive and well at the return of Jesus Christ and will be transformed. They will not suffer physical death. In this behold here that he gives, it's an imperative. This isn't a polite command. He's saying, listen to this. You have to hear this. We shall not all sleep. Not only that, but the Apostle Paul uh, included himself among those facing the possibility of being transformed while living. As I mentioned last week, there is nothing that on the prophetic clock. There are no events, there are no prophecies, there's nothing that stands between us and our Lord's return, save the clock that's in the mind of our Lord God, and He is the only one who knows. Now when Paul wrote, we shall not all sleep. He was referring to physical death. There are those in the church from years past and even present who believe that he's talking about soul sleep. Not, he's not talking about sleeping. He's, this is a metaphor for death. Anyone who uh, cares to uh, hold to the notion of soul sleep, uh, they just need to go to Philippians 1.23 where we find out there's only two places you can be. You're either here in the flesh as a believer, or you're with the Lord. You're not snoozing in between. Now, the second thing that Paul says here is that they're living. They're going to go to heaven, right? They're going to be with Jesus Christ. The problem that we have that he has to deal with is that flesh and blood cannot enter into heaven. They have to be transformed in some way. So his answer is, we shall all be changed. So whether dead or alive, a transformation must occur. 
And then there's a third thing, the speed of this thing, which is absolutely an amazing thing when you look into it uh, in the language. It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So Paul reveals that this experience uh, where this, uh, the believers are not going to face physical death or in some kind of intermediate state, but in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now this word, in a moment, is where we get our word atom from. Now an atom, don't think that the Greeks thought that the atom was the smallest indivisible unit of matter. Atom was a philosophical concept. Adam meant that which cannot be divided any further. The notion that Paul is saying here is that you're looking at the absolute smallest tick of the clock that is possible. It's indivisible. You cannot make it any smaller. That's exactly what Paul was talking about. It will happen quickly. And then he doubles down. And I love the way we translate this, the twinkling of an eye. Now, when I think of a twinkling of an eye, I, I think of a, a, a light that's, you know, that just comes off of someone's eye. So, uh, how fast is the speed of light? Right? It's 186,252, or 282 miles per hour in a vacuum. I don't know what that means, <laughs> other than it's fast. But what is the speed of thought? Okay, prepare to be disappointed. We have cars that can go faster than the speed of thought. <laughs> the speed of thought is 250 miles an hour with bursts up to 270. But that's about it. Of course, then, you're only in a little bitty space, so that's actually pretty quick up there. But here's the point. The point is, is that that twinkle of that eye can hit your brain about 750 times before it's even possible for you to register it. In other words, it's going to happen before you even know it. One moment you're going to be standing here preaching or sitting and listening, and then boom, you're going to be with the Lord. That's it. It is so fast. I, I got to thinking about fast things and... So I started looking up how fast a computer is, the fastest computer in the world. Now, in 2018, uh, the United States regained that, uh, that honor. But now I'm going to use some terms that maybe, maybe Melvin and some other guys will understand. 200 petaflops. I don't know what a petaflop is, but that's what they say. Or, to translate it, to dumb it down a little bit, two, 200,000 teraflops. So I want to put it in human terms. Now listen to this, right? In human terms, if you took 6.3 billion people and had them do a single calculation every second for an entire year, that would be the equivalent of what this computer can do in one second. To put it another way, right? If you had six Point three billion people do this, it would take them however many tens of thousands of years to come up with one second worth of data. It's, it's absolutely fast. Our translation 
It's going to be faster than that. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, that emphasizes this trumpet of God. And that's, of course, the, the, the last trumpet that we also see in, here in our text. They're talking about the same trumpet. The trumpets in the book of Revelation are not the only trumpets of God that have ever been sounded. This is something else. This is announcing our uh, being called to Him in glory. Now, this change, while it's instantaneous, the rapture itself and our time in, in glory is, is not. It's, uh, that's going to take, we've got some business to attend to, as we'll see in upcoming sermons. We've got a, a Bema seat judgment. That's where we receive our uh, rewards. There's the marriage of the Lamb. There's the marriage supper. So, therefore, this trumpet is referring to the end of the church age, which is marked by the rapture prior to the tribulation. So, we have the dead being raised incorruptible. In other words, never to die again. When we are translated, when the dead rise in Christ, or we who are living and remain rise uh, up with Christ, we will receive our resurrection bodies at that time. And it, it, it makes Paul do a, a victory. Uh, just a, I, don't know if, I don't know if Paul danced but he would be doing the dance right here, right now. Because he goes on and he says, death is the enemy. And death is the enemy that plagues us. However, death will be swallowed up in victory. I love this verb that's used here in, in the Greek. It literally means to swallow down. And a form of this, this word is translated as uh, whirlpool or maelstrom where it's, it, just gets, it just gets pulled in. Nothing can resist it. And I want to say just a little bit about that um, power. So on Thursday, November the 20th in 1980, the diamond crystal salt mine was in uh, operation and that mine was under a lake. And so... Mike, you'll have to forgive me. <laughs> Pinois? Does that sound like... Anyway, it's a, it's a French name that cannot be pronounced. Pinois. It, and it filled with water because there was a, a Texaco oil rig up above it. They drilled down. They miscalculated where it was. And they popped a hole in the top of that thing. And so the water began to go down into this mine and fill this mine up. Now, the beginning of this thing was a really slow process before this whirlpool really got to going. And so, amazingly, everyone got out alive. But let me tell you something. This thing drained so quickly that it took in 11 barges. It took in a, that, hundred, that oil rig, which was 180 feet in a, in a square, it took in a 65-acre island that a botanical garden was sitting on, and they just all went down. They just went down, and it cleared it out so fast that the Gulf of Mexico came rushing in and created Louisiana's uh, one and only 164-foot waterfall 
for a period of about two days <laughs> before it went back the other direction. And in all that water, what do you think happened in that mine? Somehow or another, the 55 people in the mine, they, they saw this leak and they said, there's not supposed to be water coming into a salt mine. So out they went, they got out, but this compressed so much that it blew up through the ground 400 feet in the air these these geysers everything got sucked into this thing let me tell you the victory that Jesus Christ had on the cross of Calvary sucks it all in it just will destroy it it'll just be gone it will be nothing and Paul is so excited about this. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death has been a plague to mankind. I mean, I know there are some Christians who say that the sting of death is completely gone even now, that we should have and hold that victory, and so we shouldn't even lament over the passing of a loved one. I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus Christ wept at Lazarus' tomb, and I believe that he was sad at the loss of human life. So death's sting, it's still there, and it will be there until that last trumpet. But when that last trumpet sounds, it will be swallowed up. Now the power of sin is found in the law of God. That's a very... It's a very strange notion, is it not, that the power of sin is found in the law of God? Why is that? It's because the law cannot be kept. No one, no one can meet the law standards. Nobody can. And so the power of sin is revealed in that you can't do it. The Greek word for sin that's used here is hamartia. Now, this is a fascinating word. Literally, it means to miss the mark. You've heard that before. Uh, you know, how do you explain it? Well, it could be that if you're at an uh, archer contest and the guy misses the, misses the mark, then the whole crowd might re uh, you know, yell out, you know, hamartias, you know, which does no good because... The archer's the first one to know. He probably knows he missed it as soon as the arrow left the bow. But it makes the crowd feel good. But one way to understand this is how Paul understood it with his original introduction to the word. And that was actually from Aristotle. Well, Sophocles, but Aristotle's the guy who explained it. Hamartia is what the Greeks saw as the fatal flaw. And every human being in Greek thought had this thing, the fatal flaw, uh, the foible, so to speak. You've heard that term before. If you didn't know what a foible was, let me introduce you to fencing. The foible is the little tip on the sword that so easily breaks off. And hamartia is that fatal flaw. For example, with Achilles, what was Achilles' fatal flaw? His heel. Oedipus, you may not know that story uh, very well, but his fatal flaw was that he didn't know who he was. And because he didn't know who he was, he didn't know or understand the result of 
the actions that he was taking. His metaphorical blindness became literal blindness. What was David's fatal flaw? His passion for Bathsheba led to the death of his son and almost to his kingdom. You see, that, that was his, the original thing. Paul took that over, and when you understand that it's not just a fatal flaw, like, okay, so we've all done some wrong things, some of them pretty big, some of them less big. That's not the point. Paul takes this word and he says, God's standard is perfection. Not only do you have a fatal flaw, any flaw at all leaves you powerless to sin. And there's only one way out of that. And he tells us in Romans 6 that that body of death is found in the believer's identification with Jesus Christ. And knowing that, Paul rejoices right here. He says, but thanks be to God in verse 57, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then based on that, he tells us how to live. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul uses a very tender term here. He says, beloved. He's talking to them, and he's saying, because of prophecy, okay? Some people don't study prophecy, and the reason they don't study it is because they say it has no earthly good. Well, Paul thinks differently and would disagree. He says, because you know the Lord could come at any time, I want you to be steadfast. That comes from the word seat, like where you're sitting right now. The reason you are seated where you are right now is because you believe that that pew will hold you. It's something that has the strength to do what it's designed to do, to hold you. The rapture, the understanding that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back for us is something that has the power to keep you steadfast, to keep you seated, to remain settled. And then there will be immovable, which is translated, you know, not to move away. They were disturbed, and they didn't, Paul didn't want them to be swayed from the faith. I mean, and today we see uh, the, the foundations of our society are moving. We don't know where they're moving. We don't even know how fast they're moving. We don't know if it's a trimmer. We don't know if it's isolated. We don't know if it's leading to something even more. But the point is this. We are not to be disturbed even by that. We're not to be moved steadfast and immovable because of our understanding that the Lord is coming back and could come back at any time, always abounding in the work of the Lord. These aren't suggestions. These are imperatives. Do this. These are commands. And he's saying now, do this, do this. Steadfast, immovable. So what are you to be doing in the meantime? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. So as a church, we're not only to earnestly expect the rapture, but also to fulfill God's commands. And not just anyway, we're to abound. 
And the reason we can abound is because we know that it's not in vain. The work that Paul refers to certainly is church work. But, you know, back in the day when he wrote this, they didn't have all the kinds of uh, volunteer opportunities that we have. They had plenty of volunteer opportunities. Don't misunderstand me. But not in the church, necessarily. And so what he, he's, he has a larger thing in mind. He's talking about your work. He's talking about, do you know where you... Listen, where do you engage the world? It is not in here. You engage the world in your workplace. That's where you have the ability to engage uh, that, that, that whole other part of your life. Martin Luther wrote this, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. I don't know if God loves clean floors or not, but I think he probably loves sweeping, you know? And, and the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by making good shoes. A Christian has a great hope in Jesus Christ. All of mankind is condemned before God. But victory over sin by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone as one Savior. The rapture of the church is to have a purifying, stabilizing, and settling effect on us. So, since we know that at any moment we might be in His presence, it should cause us to be active in the work of the Lord, so that when he returns, that's what he'll find us doing, working with confidence. Perhaps like Bobby, you feel or have felt lost. Perhaps you've been separated from your family or maybe even separated from your Lord. Perhaps you've never known him at all. Turn or return to Christ. The Lord tells us in Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Seek, seek, and you will find. Why? Because Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on a cross, not just for hamartia, but for your hamartia. And you are the joy set before him. His desire is for everyone. Did you know that? Not everyone will be saved, but you know his desire, his want, is for all to come to him. You are welcome to come to him today, but only to and through him. Today is the day of salvation. Father, we thank you that you have given to us this mystery. The mystery that some of us who are living will never die. 
but we'll be transformed. And the amazing thing is, is that we'll meet those who have gone before in the air, the Lord. And where He is, wherever that might be, that's where we're going to be. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you for the stability that that gives us, the settledness that that can bring to our heart, but also the certain knowledge that with you coming at any time, I pray that we would be doing the work, that we would work while it's yet day in service to you. Through Christ our Lord, amen.